the holiday season is really a, can be a tough time. A lot of expectations, a lot of things uh, planned that didn't work out, a lot of things not planned that did work. Uh, I got an invitation to speak in February of 2015. And it, it came about in an interesting way. I was giving a talk in, in, at a place called Pilgrim Place. Pilgrim Place is in Claremont. And this is where, uh, this is a retirement community for clergy and social action people. And um, it's fascinating. And I gave a talk about Buddhism there. Uh, there was like one Buddhist. And, uh, and, and they liked what I had to say. And about a month later, I got another invitation to speak, to be a keynote speaker in San Bernardino to a group of clergy people and others who are really smart and theologian-like and only invite scholars to speak. So I took that as a wonderful compliment. And, and then it turns out I am the first person who wasn't of the book to speak. So I'm the first non-theist and I'm the first Buddhist. And I'm going to speak about why I am a non-theist and a Buddhist. Uh, and so what a, what a joy. How, much, how many blessings do I have to be able to go and, and hang out with people of that caliber and get fed as well? You know, so, it's, so I'm really looking forward to that. Now, you might wonder what Buddhists do, Buddhist monks do for Christmas. And, and um, well, first of all, we take a really long nap in the afternoon. That's the best part. But I was invited to go to Dana. Now, Dana, D-A-N-A, is a, is a meal that lay people give the monks. And they feed the monks, and they get merit for feeding the monks, and the monks get to stay alive another day. And, and so I was invited. Uh, I was the only, um, I guess, Westerner, Caucasian, I guess whatever category I fall into. Uh, and I was Mahayana. Everybody else was Theravada. I was Mahayana. I got to sit at the end of the table, uh, which was fine, because I'm junior to everyone when I go to a, a Buddhist temple. And it was really good food. Uh, a mix between Bangladesh and Sri Lankan. I had no idea what I was eating, but it was spicy and filling. And, and then we got our Donna gift bag. And we, each one of us got a little bag filled with goodies. And I thought, wow, you know, and Christmas is cool. And, and we, we had hand soap and um, dish washing liquids and brushes and sponges and all the things important to to being a clean monk. And, and, and so I thought, you know, so many times gifts are given that are absolutely not useful at all. And, and every gift that were given to the monks could be used in a way to make their life better. And, and then I was asked to give a talk. You know, they never tell you, we're gonna, we'd like you to talk. They always they just hand you the microphone and then they want you to say something. So I talked about feeding cats, and uh, there was big smiles in the room. And, um, 
And then at the end, the monk who closed the ceremony wished everybody a Merry Christmas. And I'm thinking, Buddhism in America, you know, where else would the Buddhist monks say Merry Christmas? And then the people that were there just sort of smiled, really not knowing what to do. But I thought it was nice. So I'm going to talk a little bit about being thankful and what generosity is according to Buddhism. Now, when I was researching generosity and Buddhism, it, 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 there's a lot of stuff. It's not simple. I mean, it turns out that being generous has many levels and many consequences. And you can really be skillful at being generous, or you can be not so skillful at being generous. And, and it's all about merit and enlightenment. So after all is said and done, it's, it's, it's not about, generally speaking, helping someone or helping something. It's about, I want to get enlightened, and the first perfection, the first paramita is dana, is generosity. So, where do we start? Let me start with this. Generosity associated with wisdom before, during, and after the act is the highest type of giving. These examples of wise giving are, or three examples of wise giving are, giving with the clear understanding that according to the karmic law of cause and effect, the generous act will bring beneficial results in the future. Giving while aware that the gift, the recipient, and the giver are all impermanent. And giving with the aim of enhancing one effort to become enlightened. So like this is one way of looking at giving. Now, there was a book called How Can I Help? Ram Das wrote it years ago. And, and in the book, there was a story about this woman who would leave her apartment, and there's always be this homeless guy asking for money. And she had an affection for this guy and realized he was suffering a lot, so she would give him money. But she realized by the middle of the month, she had no more money to give. And yet he was still expecting a handout. So she was confused about this. How much should I give? When should I give? And in the book, Ram Dass says, well, why don't you have a budget for giving and set aside a little money each month and you give that money away until it's gone and then you have to wait till next month to give more money away. Which I thought, that is such a great idea, you know. So uh, I started with putting 50 cents aside each month and it went quickly. So, so then I added a few more dollars. And then you have to figure out who you're going to give to. You know, do you give to people who ask for it? Do you give to people who don't ask for it and surprise them? Do you give to, to like monks or priests or people who are really smart and spiritual and doing something to get more merit? Or do you give it to other people who aren't so smart and spiritual and get less merit? So I continued to wrestle with this whole idea, and, and then I became really good at giving money to the universe. And I've spoken about this before, but I'll speak about it again. So what I would do is I would use vending machines as my vehicle of generosity. 
and I would leave the change behind. And people would find the change in the coin slot and say, today is my day. (laughs) And for 25 cents, I could change their life. And it really worked well. I, I, because I didn't know who got it or what they would use it for. All I knew was that I was not going to take it with me. I was going to leave it behind. And, and I had remembered reading long, long ago in Buddhism about generosity that the most important thing about being generous is it chips away at your greed. That the three poisons the Buddha kept talking about was greed, hatred, and delusion. And this greed is really difficult to get around because we are self-based. It's all about us. We need to survive. And, and so until we get in our practice or get a practice that allows us to transcend self for a while and see how important the other is and see that the other is always connected to us and we to them, that we're going to think about ourselves first and everybody else second. So this idea of generosity just sort of chips away at my greed. So now when I give money to people, I don't think about it as helping them or making their life better. You know, if you give $2 to someone, it's probably not going to make their life better. You know, if you give $2,000 to someone, it might start at making their life better, but you read about the stories about the people that win the lottery and their life goes to hell, you know? And they're broke and people hate them and their money is just gone and, and they're less happy than they were before they won. So as my greed gets less and less, I see the importance of generosity and think about how many times people have been generous to me. Now, you know... When I started giving Dharma talks and doing my stuff, uh, nobody gave me anything except a hard time. And that's to be expected. This was, I was a journeyman. I was learning the business. I was finding out about myself. And what I would do is I would sit down and I would do what I'm doing now, but apparently not as well. And I would just talk about all my failures as a monk or a spiritual person or meditator. And and realized it was important for other people to hear how much I failed to make them feel okay in their practice. And, and then I got a little bit better, and sometimes people would give me like $5, and I would just blow me away. Five bucks for talking, you know? And $10 if you have something to say. So I started to really appreciate the fact that, that people will take the time to show their appreciation by offering you something. You know, sometimes I have this woman that comes to meditate, and once a month she brings me a box of cookies from Trader Joe's, little mints with sparkly things on top, and really good, and put me into a sugar depression within a half hour after consuming them. <laughs> and, and she just smiles every time she hands me this box, and I'm thinking, you know, if I get diabetes, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm not sure this is going to be the best gift for me at this point in my life. But that's another issue, too, that comes up with generosity, is accepting the generosity of others. It's really hard. It's really easier to give than it is to receive. 
And, and I don't know why that's the case, but we feel sometimes self-conscious, not worthy, it should have been more, whatever we think. When that moment occurs, it may not be skillful. And, and we might look at ourselves and say, wow, am I worth this? And of course, you're not. That's the deal. That took me 10 years to understand that when somebody gives me $5, they aren't giving it to me. They're giving it to the robes I wear and the practice I have and the lifestyle I keep. That's what they're honoring. It's not me. They don't know me. I don't even know myself. I'm still figuring it out. And when I get to the end of trying to know myself, what do I come up with? Emptiness. I'm not even there in any real way. Just moment to moment, something manifests and then goes away. So, let me talk about being thankful and then I'll continue my generosity. I was on a radio program a few months ago and it was sort of an interesting thing. I'm not quite sure what it was. It was being video recorded for the internet and going live as a radio program over the air. And it was sort of spiritual and, and cute, and they have a bunch of interesting guests, and then they had me. And, and at one point, they asked me, <laughs> at one point, they asked me, what are you thankful for? And I said, nothing. <laughs> you know? And then I went on to say, I don't know who to be thankful to. And she just, like, shut up. She didn't know what to say because, <laughs> because everybody's thankful about something except for me. And so then it got me to thinking. And this, these little moments in my life usually trigger something, you know. And I said to myself, well, what am I thankful for? You know, there must be something. You know, I mean, I know life is drudgery and suffering and then we die. But there must be something I'm thankful for, you know. And, and then I thought, you know... I'm really thankful that I found somebody who knew the Dharma, who was able to share that with me. Because it gave me a perspective that I didn't have in my life, that I was able to see when all these uncomfortable, uneasy things happened in my life, it was simply the way it happens. It always happens that way. And and when the really good things happen, and you have these moments of bliss and joy, these are the special moments because these aren't supposed to happen, according to Buddhism, I thought back then. Every time something good happened, I'm thinking, wow, why didn't the Buddha ever talk about this? Well, I think what the Buddha was saying to me when I came to Buddhism was this, that, that from a practical point of view, your life will be difficult most of the time. You'll be born. It is really difficult to be born. People scream. You know, it's messy. You don't look very good. They wrap you in things to make you cute because they don't want to see you. And, and, and then you get your first teeth and you cry all night because getting teeth really hurts. Losing teeth really hurts. Nothing good about that. Then you get your head of hair, and then as you age, it goes away. 
You know, it's just, you get all these things and they're all taken away throughout your lifetime. And then because you were born, you come to a place in your life where you have to die. And, and you sort of say, well, why was I even born in the first place? Well, you were born out of desire. The desire of your parents that hadn't been ended in nirvana yet. And so here you are, and now, unlike cats and dogs, you have a choice what you're going to do with your meaningless life. You can make it full of meaning, or you can just simply suffer and die. So when I came into Buddhism, all this stuff just sort of hit me in the face. So I'm thankful that it really stimulated another part of my brain to look at my existence in a special way. Now, I had never thought about it in this way, but you know what? In 1994, when I became ordained at the little meditation center I live at, they said to me, you can work here. We're going to give you like this little room to live in, which you'll live in for 20 or 30 years. We're going to give you a little bit of money, which will keep you alive each week. And we're going to give you health insurance so you won't have to die and you can still be able to work here. And, and at first I thought, wow, you know, I look at these big houses on TV and I look at Maseratis and Mercedes, I look at all these things and I've got a room. And I thought to myself, wow, am I giving up a lot? And as the years went by, I am more and more grateful and more and more thankful that I have this little room to live in, and I have my health insurance, now they call it Medicare, and, and I have money, now they call it Social Security, which is limited. When people ask me for money, I think to myself, I'm on Social Security. Do I give money away? Here's $5. Yes, I do. And, and I never had to work at a real job again. How lucky was I? That money was less of a concern for me than most people. That I always had as much as I needed, never as much as I wanted. But what I needed was fine, because it got me all the things that seemed to be necessary to continue my education as a Buddhist and my work as a Buddhist monk. So I am so thankful to Karuna Dharma, the woman who said, hey, we're going to give you a job. I never, ever had to go back into the workforce again. But downside to not working, you never get a vacation. <laughs> well, you know, you have to work to get a vacation. You have to work to get a day off. No days off. You're always doing something dharmically. You know? <laughs> Whether you know it or not, and there you go. So, really, really thankful for that. And thankful that I have the burden of caring for animals. See, I didn't want to care for animals. About 15 years ago, the guy that was caring for all the center animals, we had birds and fish and dogs and cats said, I am so tired of caring for these center animals. I am not going to do it anymore. You've got to find somebody else. And so they came to me and said, would you like to feed the animals? And I thought, well, that sounds cool. 
So I started to feed the animals. I, I should have known this, but it slipped my mind. They eat at least twice a day. So twice a day, every day, for the rest of my life, I'd be in the backyard feeding animals. It would be raining, it would be sunny, I'd have other things to do. The animals were always there waiting for me to feed them. So for the first year, it was a lot of fun, and for the next five years, it sort of sucked. Because it was like a job. And, you know, they never say thank you. And you buy them food, and they get bored with that. They want different food, better food, new food. Then they want your food, you know. <laughs> so, but then, then something happened. And what happened was this. I was doing mandatory generosity practice. It was mandatory. I was being generous twice a day. I was being generous with my time, and I was being generous with the food. And at first, the center bought the food for all the animals. But then, something changed, and they said, why don't you buy the food for the animals? And I said, well, okay, it can't be that much. <laughs> well, it is. But I had enough money to buy the food. It was okay. I, I didn't have a charge card. I didn't have a student loan. I didn't have a mortgage. I just fed animals. So I had enough money to feed the animals, and then more animals came because they found out free food in the backyard. So now we have possums that come at night, and we have all these other creatures that I never see, but the food is gone. And I'm thinking, wow, look what I've created. Do you know? I've created a, a refuge and a place for animals to come to eat so they can stay alive. And we don't, there's no, there's no charge for this service. And, and I always clean all the dishes, which is something I never did before. But I'm cleaning the cat dishes. And when we had dogs, I'd be cleaning the dog dishes. And then I get my little shovel and rake and I clean up that. Food everywhere, before and after. And, and then, you know, I would go away and then they would go away and then we'd all show up again. So all these years, I've had this practice of generosity, which has just chipped away at my greed and chipped away at my selfishness. And now I see the other, and I see the connection, and I see the blessing. It was a blessing. I am thankful that I was made to feed the animals, because I had no clue how much joy and happiness it could bring. And what kind of relationships I would have with these little guys. They're all my friends. I talk to them. They talk to me. Nothing special. Nothing profound. Just a bunch of noise. But there's some connection in the noise that we have, and it's wonderful. Then they die. And I thought, what a great lesson as I cry and dig the grave, you know? They're just like, man, another one down. One of the cats, little Leo, died Christmas Day. And I remember this specifically. It was 12.20 in the morning. He had kidney failure. He had been going for the last week. Three days before he died, I brought him into my room at the center, and I put him in my bed. But because he had kidney failure, we had towels and trash bags. So I would be sleeping, and he'd be sleeping, and, and we would you know, just sort of share breath with each other. And then I'm watching the Pope. 
give his Christmas Eve thing in the Basilica, and 1220, little Leo decides to pass away on the floor. And I thought to myself, I bet little Leo is half Catholic. (laughs) And was just waiting for this moment. (laughs) So I wrapped him up, went to bed, and the next morning I got up early to dig his little grave. And now he's in our backyard forever. He found his way home. And we're expecting in about 20 years for him to knock on the front door and rent a room. And we'll say, Leo, good to see you back, man. You can have that room over there. But those are the things you start to see that the farmers and agricultural people saw long, long ago that we miss in our urban environment. The life and death cycles that everything goes through. And because our pets don't live very long, we get to see a lot of life and death cycles with them. And we get to feel sadness and joy and happiness and grief. And we just look at this as going, wow, it's such a blessing and such a curse because they have to die. And then as you get older, you start to look around you and you see all the friends and relatives that you used to have, but now they're dead too. And you go, wow, what should I do? Well, you should live until you die. And you should get some kind of form made out so they don't have to fight over the $3 you're going to leave behind. (laughs) You know. And then you want to have some kind of hospital thing saying, just let me die. Don't keep me alive any longer than I have to be here because i got to come back. It's not like I'll never be back again. It's like the sooner I die, the sooner I get to start again. And then I get to suffer more. Until until one day, one day that magical realization occurs in your life. Enlightenment. It just sort of like happens, you know, one day you go to sleep and the next day somebody else wakes up. You go, wow. Made it. Made it. But you won't know you've made it. It'll just be another day. You'll be chopping wood, carrying water. That's what you'll do. And life goes on. So I'm thankful that I have this perspective. I'm thankful I have a place to live. I'm thankful people are generous with me. I'm thankful that I found out how to be generous with others as well. And I continue the work continue the work. There's no rest. I thought as I got older, I would do less. In fact, I'm, I just quit going to Thousand Oaks, Agora Hills. I've been going there for 13 years every month to teach. And I said, you know, maybe I've done it enough. Something else will happen. So I let them go and they were really sad and I was a little sad too. But 13 years, I only talk about 10 things. In a hundred different ways. (laughs) So they had heard them. They had forgotten them, but they had heard them. (laughs) Generosity. The third factor involved in giving is the gift itself, which can be either material or immaterial. Dharma dana. Dharma dana. The gift of the noble teachings is said by the Buddha to excel All other gifts. Wow. Those who expound his teachings, monks who preach sermons or recite 
from the Tapitaka, teachers of meditation frequently share the truth, thus practicing the highest kind of generosity. Those of us who are not qualified to teach the Dharma can give the gift of Dharma in other ways. We can donate Dharma books or pay for the translation or publication of a rare or new manuscript propagating the Buddha word. We can discuss the Dharma informally and encourage others to keep precepts or to take up meditation. We might write an explanation of some aspect of the Dharma for the benefit of others, giving cash or labor to a meditation center, or helping support a meditation teacher can also be considered the gift of the Dharma, as the purpose of the center and the teacher is the transmission of the Buddha's teachings. Now, Holly talks about this after every talk. She'll say, we're so happy you came, and the teachers aren't paid by us, so they are paid by the generosity and donations that you give, and our center exists because of your generosity and the donations you give. And if you can't afford anything, now she never says this, but I think it's good. If you can't afford anything, thank you for giving us your time. No, I don't So, you see, everybody can be involved in the highest form of generosity, sharing the Dharma, in many different ways. And we don't have to proselytize, we don't have to stand on the street corner. We can simply be kind. We can simply give someone our ear for a few minutes and listen to their story. What a gift that is in a busy, urban environment. This, I thought, was just fascinating. I talk about this a lot. How many people here have taken the five precepts? Anybody taken the five precepts? A few. Okay. Good. Good. Now, the five precepts is something that an official Buddhist does. And I should say more like an official religious Buddhist. Because there are different kinds of Buddhists. There are secular Buddhists and philosophical Buddhists and lifestyle Buddhists. And there are religious Buddhists. And And the five precepts turns out to be the foundation of Buddhism. Buddhism is a moral way of living in the world. So, those who have taken the five precepts, these great givings compromise the meticulous observance of the five precepts. By doing so, one gives fearlessness, love, and benevolence to all beings. Now, how could that be the case? How could taking the five precepts give love, fearlessness, and benevolence? If one human being can give security and freedom from fear to others by his behavior, that is the highest form of dana one can give, not only to humankind, but to all living beings. So it sort of works like this. The five precepts are, I will practice not to take life. I will practice not to take what is not given. I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I will practice not to speak unskillfully. I will practice not to consume intoxicants. And now you move in next door to somebody. And you're practicing the five precepts. And they find out you're practicing the five precepts. And they feel more comfortable because you're living next door. 
and they assume you're not going to kill them or steal from them or do all the other things, get drunk with them. They assume all these things, and their life is better because of the five precepts. And you've given that to them through the practice of morality or sila, as we call it in Buddhism. I thought that was just fascinating. I never looked at the five precepts in that way. I looked at the five precepts as being beneficial to me and perhaps people around me, but not looking at it as a gift or the practice of generosity. The suttas, the sutras of, the Bud- of Buddhism, uh, records various motives for exercising generosity. In the Anguttara Nikaya, they say there are eight things, eight ways to practice. Number one, one gives with annoyance or as a way of offending the recipient or with the idea of insulting him. Have you ever done that? Somebody says they don't want broccoli and you give them broccoli. You know, it's just like, yeah, or, or you know if you're going to be nice to them or generous to them, it's going to annoy them because they hate you. Or, or if, you, if you are in a conversation with them and you start agreeing with them, that pushes their button too. So we have to be careful in our practice of generosity. We don't want to offend too many people. Number two, fear also can motivate a person to make an offering. You know, sometimes like you're at work and they have a, a, a gift-sharing little thing and so they sort of intimidate you to participate. And so fear can get us to give, you know? Or, I tell you what, the meditation center only needs $5 or it's going to close. Can anybody give you $5? And then out of fear, we give the $5, the meditation center stays open and everybody gets enlightened. Works out fine. Number three, one gives in return for a favor done to oneself in the past. So last year you got a really nice Christmas present from your aunt, and this year you give her one and she doesn't give you one. So because you got one, you give one. And that's, I think that's the kind of generosity a lot of people practice. That I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And it's unsaid, and it may not even be clear, but as it turns out, that's sort of where it goes. Number four, one also may give with the hope of getting a similar favor for oneself in the future. Cool. Number five, one gives because giving is considered good. There we go. Welcome to Christmas. You know? Number six, I cook, they do not cook. It is not proper for me who cooks not to give to those who do not cook. Some give urged by an altruistic motive. So if we have a skill, right now we're building stuff in the backyard of our meditation center, and we have these people that are coming in and pretty much donating their services to build this stuff for the Buddha. And it is so cool that they're doing this from an altruistic perspective, from a Buddhist perspective, practicing generosity. They have the skills, we don't. And they're donating their skills. So I see it manifesting a lot at Buddhist temples. Some give alms to gain a good reputation. 
you know? Look at him. And, and you see these, these people who are celebrities and, and well-off will sometimes give $10 million to UCLA. You go, wow, that is so cool. And then they get their name on the building. That is even better. Because that name and building will last a lot longer than they will. Some others give alms to adorn and beautify the mind. Wow. So we, in our giving... I think we need to look at our intention. We need to think of Donna as being a practice, the first perfection. We need to think of who's going to get it, who's going to give it, and is it an appropriate gift? Sometimes they can be inappropriate. And you may not realize that, but in giving monks tickets to the play, it may not be appropriate. Because they're not going to go to the play. And then, and you say to them, but you're going to love this play if you decide to go. And the monks are going to say, well, but we don't go to plays. No matter how good it is. And so in this case, we need to look carefully at ourself, find that selfless place. We need to look carefully at the person we're going to give to and, and decide if it's worth giving to. And that may be the hardest part, that you may look at someone and say, it's not worth giving that person any money at all, because it's not going to do him or her any good. It'll just be a waste of money. And that's when you reflect on yourself, but I'm not giving it to them, I'm giving it to me, so I'll have less greed. I'm giving this generosity to myself. And then you give the person $2 and they do whatever they want to do with it. And then if you find somebody who's worthy, somebody who has been practicing and, and your generosity allows them to practice longer and be of service to others, that might be the place to go. And you can do that at the LA Mission downtown. Those people have been practicing a long time and they are serving the population who needs it the most. And by giving to them, that merit is multiplied. So as I look at this holiday that we just got through, thankfully, and as I look at all the sales on TV and Home Shopping Network, and all the things we could buy and don't need, and all the money we could save if we only spent money, I say to myself, wow, we're really locked into this consumer production capitalist model. And, and where does the freedom come from? I suppose the freedom comes from the choice to give. To give to others. To appreciate the fact that, that you have enough, no matter how much it is, to be able to give. And if you have nothing at all, you may have time to give. Which as I age, becomes even more valuable than money. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there and ask if anybody has questions or comments on what I've said. This was more of a serious talk, I suppose, today, and we lost a few people during the talk, but such is life. Okay, anybody have anything they'd like to say? There was different kinds of generosity, eight kinds of generosity found in the Anguttara Nikaya, 
the numerical sayings of the Buddha. So I imagine this was in the chapter of eights. Just thinking. Yes? Um, can you explain a little of the difference between Theravada, which we practice here, and what you practice? What, what are the differences? Okay. Uh, I can give you some, uh, just a really brief, because it's, yeah, it's, it's lengthy and confusing. <laughs> so, we don't want that. We want it simple and concise. Okay. Um, in Theravada, uh, the Buddha said, I have achieved nirvana, and, and you also can achieve nirvana, and this is what you need to do. And this is what you need to do because this is what I did. So it wasn't a theory. It was his actual practice that he shared with us that allowed him to achieve nirvana. What is nirvana? Nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirths. And it's more of a therapy than a religion. That the Buddha was a Hindu his whole life. He was never a Buddhist. The people that followed him after his death called themselves Buddhists. And the word Buddha means one who is awake. So these were followers of the awakened one. Worked pretty good for 500 years. Uh, and then Buddhism went to China and got fused with Taoism and Confucianism and became a religion. And when it became a religion, the goal of Buddhism changed. The goal of Buddhism now was to become enlightened, not to achieve nirvana. Enlightenment, according to me, is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Hmm. And that would mean everybody's us and we are everybody. All things, all people, and us are always connected and interconnected. And everything is conditional. Nothing exists without all the other things. In changing the goal, they also changed from being an arhat, one who achieves nirvana, into being a bodhisattva one who postpones nirvana until all ascension beings are saved. And then they decided to be reborn time and time again as a human to be of assistance and service to all things until all things had been saved, saved in the sense of achieving nirvana and the end of suffering. Um, so we have the Catholics, the early Buddhists, and we have the Protestants, the Reformed Buddhists. And then we have the Vajrayana, the Tibetan Buddhists, and they're sort of like Unitarians, maybe. <laughs> so we have these like three categories. Now, we all had the same father, we all had different mothers. And so what we see is we have a, a different way, a different philosophy, different perspective, different goal. But... In all forms of Buddhism, you'll find the Four Noble Truths, you'll find the Eightfold Path. You'll find a lot of similarity in the same way in all of Christianity. You'll find a lot of similarity and a lot of differences. We have the same thing. So now you say, well, which one is better? Which one is better? And, and, and the best one is the one you're practicing. You know, I have a couple different cameras and I have an inexpensive camera, I have a more expensive camera, and I was thinking to myself, which, which camera is the best? And it turns out, which camera is the best? The one I have with me at the time I'm taking the pictures. So which Buddhism is the best? It's the one you're practicing right now. Do they all lead to the same place? Eventually. 
There's a longer way in Mahayana, a shorter way in Theravada. So uh, my teacher, who was Theravada, he came from Sri Lanka, would always giggle when, they, when the Mahayana talked about being a bodhisattva first and then waiting and saving all people. And my teacher would say, you know, if you have the opportunity for Nirvana, take it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so he, he was... <laughs> So he was wise in his own way. <laughs> is that helpful? Yeah, I, I wonder what the long version is. Yeah. Well, the long version, the long version is saving all sentient beings, because they've been doing that now for two thousand years, and and we still have more people to be saved rather than less. You know, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a question about generosity. I have a man who lives behind my place in the alleyway, and he's kind of slowly drinking himself to death. He drinks and he urinates all over himself and whatever. So he always asks me for money and I always bring him food instead. And you were talking about, you know, is that my decision to make in some way? I bring him sandwiches and it's been called, I've been bringing him soup. And, um, and he continues to drink himself to death. And, but he always asks for money and I bring him food instead. And I'm kind of making that decision in my head not to aid his uh, destruction. But I wasn't quite sure about what you were saying. I think that falls under the appropriate gift, okay. the appropriate appropriate act of generosity, okay. and and you get to choose, you know, because you're the one that's giving, he's the one that's asking, because he's a beggar, he can't be a chooser, even though he'd like to be. <laughs> so so it's your choice, and if you feel appropriate to give him money, that's fine. If you feel more appropriate to give him food, that's fine. Okay, so yeah. I misunderstood. Yeah, no, it's it's always your choice. Yeah, actually, it's always your choice. And and your merit either goes up or down depending on the choice. So I think food would probably be a better choice than, than, than money. And and you're probably not the only person giving him stuff. No. So there will be other people who will give him money because it's the most convenient. Giving food takes more time. You know, and if it's hot food, then it has to be hot as well. And then you want to give him good food. So do you give him McDonald's, you know, or do you give him vegetarian? You know, and then and so if you're giving a McDonald's, maybe less merit. (laughs) I'm just saying. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um. What about people who might be insulted if you give them things? Yeah. Remember, that's one of them. You know, and if you really want to insult them, give them something. Yeah, they, it's, it's really difficult because what happens is pride gets in the way. These, you know, we all have pride at some level. And, and it's not like, you're not saying to yourself, I'm not worthy of the gift. What you're saying to yourself is, I don't need the gift. Why do they think I need that? You know? And, and so, how do we get around that? It's really interesting. I, I don't know because it's, it's all about them at that point, and has nothing to do with you. So you, you know, and then sometimes giving things to your parents. I mean, sometimes I know my mother became a bit self-conscious when I would give her stuff because she'd always given us stuff. And now the roles were starting to change a bit. And, and she didn't know quite how to take, she always gave. 
And so we need to be skillful, I suppose, because we don't want our gift to be a burden on the person, and we don't want our gift to be taken in the wrong way. So I, it's, I, I can't tell you what would be the appropriate gift, but perhaps after a little meditation, something would come to you. I don't know if that's going to be helpful or not. But it's not about you when it gets to that point. It's a, well, that's a good question. Should you give it anyway, even if it makes them feel uncomfortable and makes them hate you? I don't know. You know, you might say, but this is really good for you. This is what you really should be doing, and I want you to have it. And they would say, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that. It's you that wants me to have that, not me. So, so then you get back to, you, to yourself, and you go, why do I want them to have this? If they don't want it, why am I so insistent that they take it from me? Maybe I should give it to somebody else who could appreciate it, or maybe I need to rethink how I feel about this person and how I see this person. You know, And, and I found with, with, with my practice in Buddhism that everybody was my mirror. They all reflected me back to me. And sometimes I couldn't see that. Sometimes you know, I cursed them. But generally speaking, it was just about me not seeing quite as clearly as I could have. So it's great practice. I, I often, I'm fond of saying there are two kinds of teachers in this world. The ones that show us what to do and the ones that show us what not to do. The second category are my greatest teachers. And I have a lot of them. A lot of people show me what not to do. Thanks for the question. Sorry I couldn't give you a good answer. It's more of a Zen answer. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Yeah, Jeannie. Yeah, those are good business questions because business isn't supposed to have a heart. Hiring and firing is supposed to... Great equanimity goes into that. If she's been with you for 10 years and, and just now stealing, something has changed in her life. You know, it seems to me. And, and, and so you might want to sit down and talk with her and ask her how things are going. Without a, well, that's the easy way. That's why we have war. We, we have people we don't like, we just kill them. You know, that's the easy way. Uh, the hard way is engaging and creating a relationship and sitting down to listen. That's the hard way. You know, and, and that's why most business doesn't go in that direction because it takes too much time. You know, they're, they're on a schedule. They got profits to get. 
you know. But but you don't have to worry about profits. You just have to worry about criticism, you know. So yeah. It's not because nobody else is going to agree with you. <laughs> so, you know, no. So, so, but if you can do that, you, you might find that she does have a problem and maybe you can help her. And then that'll solve the problem you have with her. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always going to feel that way. And what you have is a budget, and you have this much money to give away. And then you have to choose. And I don't know if it's supposed to make you feel good. I don't know if that's the end result of giving. You know, uh, some people feel good about it. They feel good, but is that an ego reaction? You know, uh, probably. So sometimes you just give and, and, and don't have any feelings at all. And sometimes you give and don't feel good because you couldn't give enough, but you'll never have enough to give enough. It just never works that way. You know? Even time, you'll never have enough time to give all the time you could away. So, uh, one of the unsatisfactory aspects of being a human, you know? Welcome to Buddhism, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Is there a marginally negative merit, or is all giving marginally positive? No, there, there are, and it's interesting, as I was researching this, there are types and kinds of people you don't want to give to, you know, they say, uh, because there's less merit. And if you can find somebody more worthy, that should be your target. But uh, this is an ancient way of looking at the world, and and... I don't know if it really fits as well as it used to into our everyday experience. Um, so, for me, I think everybody's worthy at some level or other of our generosity. Um, it just always comes back to us uh, what we want to do, how we want to do it, and how much. And, and will it cause more suffering to give or less suffering to ourselves? Because we can't give enough, and we can't make enough of a difference in the lives of the people we give to. So I think these are all considerations that need to go into our practice of generosity. Because ultimately, the idea of the practice of generosity is to allow us to achieve nirvana. It's one of the stepping stones, one of the paramitas, one of the perfections we need to perfect in order to realize our own perfection. Um, so looking at it that way, it's a, it's a test, and it's a, it's a job of some sort, and that may take a little bit of the personalization away from it. You, uh, you, you're doing it because nirvana is your goal, not because the person needs it, even though they do. And I know it sounds cruel when the people need it, but I don't think we could ever give enough to the people that need it 
to make that much of a difference. At least I've never been in a financial situation like that to give enough. So if I give $3 or $5 to a waitress who served me some food, you know, that, and that may be percentage-wise out of my income, a big percent. You know, somebody else's income, they don't even think about it. You know, and, and I find, and they say, this has been substantiated by other people, those who have the less give the most. It's just ironic how that works. And I guess the ones that have the most have the most because they give the less. You know, so good luck. <laughs> but keep giving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You say thank you and then regift. No, I'm <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Oh, I say that a lot when I get stuff and I to myself. And and you know, but but they took the time. I I got somebody used PayPal in Yugoslavia to send me $5. And I thought to myself, all the time and effort they went through to get that little PayPal $5 to me. And then PayPal took a percentage. You know, so it was like $4.80 or something. I was so blown away by the thought and the intention behind it. Uh, you know, it, I allowed them to practice generosity. It allowed me to practice receiving with, a, with an open heart and, and a grateful mind. And, and so this, this give and take between these two people half a globe away made a difference. So, so people oftentimes choose wrong in what they think we would like or need or would appreciate. But because they did it in the first place, I'm always grateful and thank them. Yeah. So I would say don't say anything negative about any gift. Just say thank you and go on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I haven't been in a relationship for 20 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would probably be the worst person to ask. You know, <laughs> If you have a cat that you're having problems with, 
I'm the guy. <laughs> but thanks for thinking I would have an answer. I <laughs> <laughs> and having said that, our time is, <laughs> has come to an end. <laughs>